Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello and welcome to the Transfer Window, the podcast that brings you breaking news, the biggest stories and expert insight and analysis from Planet Football. It's Wednesday's edition this week today, which means, of course, one of your favourites, your questions answered. But as co- of course, we'd like to bring you a bit of that very, very important breaking news before we start off chatting about what you guys have been chatting about. And Duncan, you've got some very interesting update on Atletico Madrid goalkeeper Jan Oblak. Yes, Oblak um, seems to want to uh, involve himself in this uh, the summer market for goalkeepers. Um, he signed a new contract at Atletico uh, last season and uh, is one of the highest paid goalkeepers in the world. Um, there is a defined release clause in that contract. Uh, and I th- what I'm hearing from his side is that uh, there's a bit of um, unease uh, in the shape of the Atletico squad at present in the way that they're losing top players such as Antoine Griezmann. Um, such as uh, Diego Godin um, the possibility of losing more Rodri obviously has a um, a firm offer from Manchester City to join and the expectation uh, amongst football is that he will go to Manchester City um, with the club paying his 70 million release clause uh, and Oblak it seems is uh, worried that he's signed up to a team that uh, will no longer be competitive in the Spanish league and no longer be competitive in the Champions League having spent huge amounts of money on their squad last season and on retaining players like Griezmann in an attempt to win the Champions League and uh, and failing to do so uh, basically the they are uh, trying to regain the revenues and restructure um, around younger players. And of course, um, one of the players that Atletico have targeted is uh, Jean-Felix, who Manchester City and all, all the top clubs in Europe are trying to secure at the moment and to Atletico see as a replacement for, um, for Griezmann uh, should he uh, manage to achieve his wish of getting out of the club. Uh, all Black has been of interest to Paris Saint-Germain for some time. He's also been of interest to Manchester United for some time as a, as a, one of the top goalkeepers in the world and, and a player who could um, improve their squads. Um, Oblak, I think, is aware that something might happen with Paris Saint-Germain this summer in the sense that Buffon has uh, not had his contract this, the second year of, it, of his two-year deal taken up and is leaving the club. And the uh, French champions are in the market for a top goalkeeper. David De Gea is obviously a very strong candidate for Paris Saint-Germain. Um, as we've told you in the podcast for... Um, over a year now, unhappy with his situation at Manchester United, contract not resolved. Uh, United in the market for other goalkeepers. We broke the story for you that they'd made an offer to Ajax for Andrea Nana. Um, we also told you about their interest in Silicon at Barcelona and Mike Minion 
at uh, Lille. Um, interestingly, uh, the briefing I have when it comes to Manchester United and All Black is that All Black would not be interested in moving there because of the status of the club at present. Uh, more importantly, because they do not have Champions League football at present. Um, I'm not hearing from the Manchester United end that they've been trying to get All Black, which again doesn't surprise me given that you're looking at a transfer fee of over 100 million euros to sign him and one of the highest uh, salaries for a goalkeeper in football, not far off the kind of money that uh, David De Gea is asking for um, at the club or has been asking for at the club to stay at Manchester United. So some interesting decisions to be taken um, by a number of clubs here. And uh, I wouldn't rule Real Madrid out of the equation um, when it comes to De Gea. Uh, He's not a priority for them. Uh, The priority, absolutely, is to take Paul Pogba from Manchester United and they've been working on trying to make that deal happen. But um, I'm told De Gea is in their thoughts and if they can find a way to structure a deal, they may go for that too, realising that either this summer or next summer, the player is likely to move and this will be the opportunity to take him. I get the feeling, Duncan, that... um... De Gea and All Black, who are not so much De Gea, but All Black's been a player discussed uh, as not available for transfer, but someone who's very much coveted by several clubs for probably the last three seasons, which helped him get that bumper new deal at Atletico. But I get the feeling with the signings of Kepa, Alisson, Ederson, even Courtois going to Real Madrid, all on salaries way beyond what we've seen given to goalkeepers uh, at any time in the game I think All Black and De Gea might just have missed the bus a bit here and that they're looking now around to them and thinking hang on I'm as good as these guys but I'm earning half the amount of money um, but again as I say the, the positions at the really big clubs have all been filled well, Paris Saint-Germain is the one that uh, has the obvious opening and, and needs you have to say that PSG need to upgrade a goalkeeper um, to get themselves onto that footing where they want to be as as uh, Champions League winners. So, yeah, that's the obvious slot. Um, as I say, Madrid could come into the equation. I think there's um, there's a degree of unhappiness um, from Zidane about Thibaut Courtois, and he needs to be convinced that Courtois is the is the right man for for his team. Um, Possibly you could see Juventus upgrade at some point uh, in in the future. Um, obviously, if Manchester United lose De Gea, they will need a, um, a top goalkeeping replacement, although they're not looking at that end of the market at present. Um, I think for All Black, it is difficult um, because, of, because of his cost. I think uh, if you factor in... The, the release clause and his salary, he probably comes out as slightly more expensive and an overall deal to secure than De Gea at present. And, and as you say, the one thing with goalkeepers is, elite goalkeepers, there has to be slots for them. So it's kind of an unusual market in that um, you can only really buy a top-class goalkeeper if you need a new starting goalkeeper. You can't have you can have two great strikers, you can have two great midfielders, you can have multiple great defenders, but it, it's a bit of a waste of money to have uh, more than one elite goalkeeper in the squad. So one of the goalkeepers who we think will definitely be starting his club next season is uh, Tishtegan at Barcelona. And we've got a very good question from our old friend Brett Ramirez here. 
which his Twitter handle is at Jived2. And he asks Duncan, with one of the highest wage-to-revenue ratios and with the young and possibilities of De Ligt and Griezmann, how can Barcelona afford Neymar, assuming Dembele and Coutinho are traded with some cash? And is the combined salary not equal to €500,000 per week? How do they both, can, how can even fit both players, Griezmann and Neymar, into uh, the same team? Would it mean Neymar playing second fiddle? So that's about five questions in one there, Duncan. Brett's done well. He has um, an intelligent questions. Um, he probably noticed that, uh, I think last week or the week before, the Barcelona-based papers were reporting that the club wanted to do both Griezmann and Neymar. Um, and he's asking the sensible question of how that works financially and how it works um, from a sporting perspective. And, I, and I, I'm not sure it does work financially. Um, Griezmann's on €20 million Euros net at uh, at Atletico. Um, Atletico, as we told you a couple of weeks ago, are um, trying to ensure that should he go to Barcelona, they take 200 million euros for the deal, which is his current release clause, not the 120 million figure it will reduce to, I think, on the on the 1st of July. Their argument being that he has already announced that he's leaving the club. Um, therefore, the decision to leave was taken while the more expensive clause is in effect. Um, therefore, they should get the money for that. Uh, Neymar, Qatar, as we told you first on the podcast, are ready to sell the player um, from a, a sporting perspective and ready from a financial perspective if they can get the money they paid for him back on the deal. Um, but you're talking there about a, re- a record transfer fee, still 222 million euro release clause that, uh, that PSG used to get him out of Barcelona and the highest wages in France. Um, there has been suggestions from the Barcelona end that uh, that were Neymar to come back, he would sacrifice, he should sacrifice some of his salary to get back to Barcelona because he wants to be there. Um, but either way, it's not going to be a cheap deal. Um, and, and as we, you know, we've told you previously about Griezmann, there are major reservations within the Barcelona squad about bringing him to the club. They weren't happy with the way he acted last summer when they um, helped to try and convince him to come. And then he gave that TV program where he announced he was staying at Atletico. And they're not happy about the way he's he's handled himself in the media and his social media subsequently. Um, and there is. I'm told still major doubt within the board of Barcelona he's the, that he's the right player to go for from a financial perspective. Um, I'm told if that does go through, it will be a decision by the president to sign him, uh, not a decision by the coach and the players um, and by some members of the board. In terms of Barcelona's revenue, it is extremely high. Um, they declared the revenue for the 2007. 18 season of 690 million euros. Um, their salaries are also very high. Their, um, their salaries for the, the football department are 486 million. Barcelona is quite complicated because they run other sports. And if you add all of their endeavours together, they claim to have a total revenue of 914 million and are predicting they'll go over the billion euro mark very soon. Um, the revenue, their wages to revenue are high, um, but they've managed to increase the revenues quite consistently in recent years um, and they've managed to juggle having high wages um, 
for throughout that period and, and giving uh, big new contracts to people like Lionel Messi, who, who held them to ransom by allowing his contract to to go down to its final year, holding discussions with Manchester City, basically getting an offer from Manchester City, um, an open checkbook offer from Manchester City to come to the club, uh, which he um, used as leverage to go to Barcelona and say, I will sign a new contract, but these are the terms you will pay me, um, which were a record um, salary for a player, um, plus a massive signing on fee um, and essentially said there is no room for negotiation here. You either give me the money I want or I go as a free agent at the end of the season to one of your rivals and Barcelona caved on that, which is one of the big reasons why their um, salaries went up so much um, in the, the last year. How do they achieve a purchase of Neymar um, or Griezmann, assuming they decide to go down that line. Um, you're right, De Jong is already there. That They're committed to that. 86 million euros total. Um, relatively low wages for Barcelona, in the sense he's under 10 million net a year because of a young age. They're trying to get De Ligt too. Um, Again, uh, wage is an issue there. We, we told you on the podcast some weeks ago that Barcelona do not want to go above the figure they've given to De Jong. Um, and uh, Mino Raiola has used uh, Manchester United to get a much higher offer for De Ligt. He's also been in talks with um, Paris Saint-Germain, who need a centre-back. Uh, to get them to match that offer for De Ligt. I can tell you that Raiola met... Um, uh, PSG sporting director Antero, Antero Enrique in Monaco uh, last weekend to discuss that deal. Um, so Barcelona have a decision to make there as to whether they're prepared to match the wages or, or to try and convince the to come on a, a lower amount of money, even though he has Raiola in his ear saying you can get this and you can, you can get it at a top Champions League club. Obviously, they need to move players out, which is why you've seen um, uh, Malcolm placed on the market. You see um, Barcelona encouraging Manchester United in the pursuit of Rakitic. You see uh, Barcelona being ready to sell Silicon to one of his suitors with Manchester United, one of those, although he's not their first choice for the position. They've offered Philippe Coutinho to Paris Saint-Germain and they've offered Usman Dembele to Paris Saint-Germain as part of a Neymar deal. Even if they don't get Neymar, they would be happy to sell either of those players to raise revenue and to take their huge wages off the wage bill. And I think there is a, a distinct possibility that they will be able to get a deal to someone for Philippe Coutinho because there is significant interest around the top clubs in, in Europe in him. So it's a juggling act, uh, but the revenues are so high uh, and the quality of players they have on their books. And they've also been quite clever in recent years in signing players like Yeri Mina um, and putting the Barcelona badge on them, if you like, uh, and then selling them on at a profit. Uh, Lucas Digne is another example of that. So that they have that kind of um, pseudo-Chelsea strategy of we can, we can bring players to our club, uh, increase their value and their, their presence by being Barcelona players and then sell them on to other European clubs at a profit and combine all those things together. That allows them to have these top, top stars in their squad. I think it's an interesting case of sticker twist for Barcelona this summer, Duncan. 
they're the club rather than Madrid. And of course, it's usually the other way around. They've invested heavily in players in the last three seasons. Uh, you look at the uh, acquiry of um, Usman Dembele for over 100 million euros, and of course, Felipe continue for more, uh, for 142 million euros. Neither of those players has necessarily established themselves or made the impact that Barcelona would have obviously expected um, their time at the club. And when I say stick or twist, what I mean is, with Real Madrid, clearly, as um, uh, David Dean of Arsenal once said, getting the tanks out and firing 50 euro notes or 500 euro notes in their direction um, with the kind of signings they're already making and intend to make. Barcelona is, is, is like you know, a club that can't afford to sit still. They, they have to progress and the only way to, they can progress next season is to win the Champions League. We you know that Messi is very upset that they uh, capitulated in such a a very meek way to Liverpool this season and uh, Messi of course has massive influence at the club so they have to do something to improve the squad improve the first team um, we talked about the Neymar would he improve or would he not given his recent form injury stroke personal problems Griezmann they seem to be just keeping on a, a hook just in case Neymar doesn't come off or they decided to want him so th- there's an intention to improve but I think with Madrid recruiting in the way they are and obviously letting themselves up for not just a, a, you know, a pitch at the league at the title, but also at the Champions League again, then Barcelona have to be I think, a, a bit more forthright in their transfer business. So far, they've looked a bit dithering. Certainly, they, obviously, the signing of Franco de Jong um, before the window opened was a very, very um, significant one. And clearly, he is a player on the up. But other than that, they, they just, I think they need to up the game a little bit if they're going to keep up with Real Madrid. I'm guessing they feel like they've got a squad who can already compete, given that they obviously wiped the floor with, uh, with almost everyone last season. But as I said, it's, it's very difficult to keep that up. And the mentality of players is difficult to maintain in that winning mode um, through a, the following season because effectively everyone naturally kind of switches off and goes down a gear thinking, well, we did it last year, we can do it again. And hey, we've got a new player in as well. So that's going to go well for us. So it will be an interesting summer, I think, for Barcelona um, because they will look across, uh, sort of look south to Madrid and see the kind of signs they're making, thinking, right, what do we do to um, to make sure that we're still top top next season? Absolutely, and that's the you know it's the eternal battle in Spain, isn't it? They're, they're those two going head to head with each other in the transfer market to win the Spanish title and also to win the Champions League. And, um, and Madrid have been the, the the club that have triumphed. In the, in the Champions League so frequently in recent years and Barcelona have been dominant domestically for a good chunk of it but um, can't add uh, any more Champions League titles um, in the last uh, couple of years and, and they want they want that back again and, and their most important player their most important individual the guy who sets the tempo and the direction for the club is uh, Lionel Messi desperately wants another Champions League title to his name so there's there's lots of uh, interesting elements to it and uh, uh, something we, we I think we can have a good conversation with some of our other uh, journalist friends in future Transfer Window podcasts Now 
this will be something that both Real Madrid and Barcelona as clubs who are often the beneficiaries more than most of penalty kicks uh, to dodgy decisions, let's just say. Good question from Junaid at JJ Dazzler. I can't make heads nor tails of the new handball rules. Could Professor Duncan, he's actually a doctor, by the way, he's never been a professor, <laughs> explain the new rules to a simpleton such as myself? Don't do yourself down, Junaid. We don't think you're a simpleton because most of football is confused by this. But Duncan is not, thankfully. He's here to give us the lowdown. <laughs> well, look, we, we highlighted this on the, on the podcast in March when um, these rules uh, started to be unveiled by IFAB, the, the body that uh, the FIFA supervises um, and, and determines the laws of the game. And we said that this was going to be a recipe for chaos because they'd, uh, they'd brought in conditional elements uh, to the, the handball rule and um, set it up in a way in which there will now be a premium for uh, players who have the ball in their opponent's box to look for an opponent with their arm away from their body and kick the ball against it because it will be easier to win a penalty than it will be to try and create a scoring opportunity and have a shot. And we've already seen that. We're already seeing that happening in the Women's World Cup. I don't know whether Sadio Mane um, did it in the Champions League final or not. Um, I don't think anyone's asked him that question about whether he deliberately went for Musa Sissoko's arm there. But for sure, he's a skillful enough player to be able to take an advantage of that situation. And... Uh, the Champions League, it became clear that they were they were using like a kind of early version of this these new rules um, and, and rewriting the handball rule to suit them, um, and we're applying VAR to ensure that uh, that most of those handballs were given penalties. So, so so Manny would have known that that was an opportunity for him to get a penalty in that game. Uh, maybe one day we'll find out if that's what he was actually trying to do. If you go through the rules, and, and I'd recommend people to go to the IFAB website and, and download um, a copy of the 2019-20 Laws of the Game, um, it's got all the changes highlighted within them and there are quite a number of changes in different areas. If you read through it, you'll see how messy it is in that it's, it's saying... Uh, let's do the the the, the change of uh, the, the sort of conditional element in it. Um, so it's saying it's an offence if a player deliberately touches the ball with their hand arm, including moving the hand arm towards the ball, which was basically the old rule um, that uh, handball had to be deliberate, and there were ways of assessing whether the 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 action had been deliberate. And one of those whether you moved your hand or arm to the ball rather than the, the ball hitting your hand or, hand or arm. One of the new elements is um, it's automatically offence if the player whose hand it hits gains possession or control of the ball after it touched their hand or arm and then scores, scores a goal or creates a goal-scoring opportunity. Um, it's all, which means that the referee now has to make a decision on handball based upon what happens next. So in certain instances, when the ball hits a player's arm, it will be given as a foul. And in other instances, it won't be given as a foul, depending on whether um, the player goes on to score or creates a goal chance or um, gains possession of the ball. Um, if you score a goal off, if a goal is scored off a player's hand or arm, um, that is automatically handball. 
as it, which it wasn't previously. So we had a, a couple of incidents, at least a couple of incidents in the Premier League last season where goals uh, went in off a player's arm accidentally, clearly non-deliberately, um, and were given as goals correctly under the old rules. Uh, under the new rules, those can never be a goal. Um, now, there, there then is an element of what qualifies as handball in certain instances and they've written the rule as it is usually an offence if a player touches the ball with their hand arm when the hand arm has, has made the body unnaturally bigger which is this natural silhouette unnatural silhouette natural silhouette uh, thing we've been talking about recently and the hand arm is above beyond their shoulder level um, so it's then saying that Essentially, if you leave your, your hands in any kind of distance away from the body, so they're not close to the body or hidden behind your back, um, if you've got your arm out from the body and it hits you, then it will usually be given as handball. Um, and if the arm is above shoulder level, then it should usually be given as handball. And there's some exceptions if the player's on the ground. Um, but essentially, it's, I think that is a recipe for disaster and I've never seen a rule in football which is defined as it is usually an offence. Well, Duncan, just to come in there, because I spoke to a, a, a good friend of mine who's a lawyer uh, and a big football fan. Well, he sports Crystal Palace, so make of that of what you will. Um, and he, he said to me, the law... The very, very foundational description, what defines the law is, it is or it is not an offence. You can't have usually, you can't have someone saying, well, usually it would have been murder, however. <laughs> and that's the way he said it to me. He said, you, you can't have any sort of sense of grey area in a law. Otherwise, it's a recipe for chaos because interpretations of that rule will be multiple and you basically... You're inviting anarchy over this. Now, why is it that people at IFAB, who we presume are very experienced football administrators who know about the rules of competition, why are they inserting words like usually? Who, who's getting the advantage? Who's getting the benefit? And who's getting, uh, I don't know, a free pass out of the word usually? I, I have a degree of sympathy for them because handball has always been a, a difficult area for football. Um, and the reasons why it's difficult, you, you have to have a handball rule. But if you make it all handballs are fouls, then you fundamentally change the nature of the game. Because as I say, you'll start getting attackers trying to hit the ball off the hand of an opponent in order to gain a free kick, in order to gain a penalty. Because it's easier to do that than it is to get the ball past the defender, past the goalkeeper in the, in the goal. You know, that's the, I think that is the reason why handball has always be, had an element of intentionality and intent, or, or a definition as it has to be deliberate to be given to avoid those situations where you, can, you change the, the structure of the game so that players target hands to get easy fouls. And because of the controversy over handball, which is huge, the IFAB have clearly decided that they needed to change the rule. There was an element here in that um, with these handballs that happened in the Premier League, that the, the Premier League had, had taken on itself to rewrite the handball rule and had told their, uh, their referees that no goal should be scored 
after the ball had come off an opponent's arm. And then that rule, which they'd, um, which they'd told the clubs about, uh, but didn't tell the media and didn't tell the general public about, was being applied sort of surreptitiously by referees. And when um, Wolves scored against uh, uh, Manchester City with an unintentional um, handball off Bolly's then that, it, that came to the fore because there was a complaint that it, the referee should have um, not allowed that goal. And then various former referees, such as Keith Hackett, who used to be in charge of um, uh, all refereeing in England, were saying, well, yes, it should have been a goal according to the laws of the game. That put pressure on the FA to then go to IFAB and have the rule changed the way they wanted it to be changed, which it has been. So you now have it very explicitly said you cannot score a goal off the hand or arm. And there's a, there is a good argument for that. I think there's an argument why it shouldn't happen, but that's probably the, the strongest argument for changing the rule. Is, yeah, it does feel wrong when someone scores um, a goal off the hand. They've then gone way over the top and tried to change so many other elements of the rule and tried to introduce uh, a clearer definition um, so that um, most uh, handballs can be given. Um, so there's less debate over whether a player is deliberately handled or not. And what they've ended up doing is is making the rule less clear-cut than it's ever been before. As you say, once you once you bring in, it is usually an offence, you, then you know, I, I've seen journalists say that this is, these are guidelines, they're merely guidelines. They're not guidelines. The laws of the game are the laws of the game. You can have additional guidelines extraneous to them, which says we think you should interpret them in this way. But what is written in the law itself is the law. It's not a guideline. So it is usually an offence is now the law, which means what is you ask the question, what is an offence? What is an offence? And when there's debate over it, um, the amount of pressure that's going to put on referees uh, in, the, in the sense of, well, why did you decide on this occasion that it was a handball when another occasion similar you didn't uh, decide it was a handball? I cannot see this law surviving. I, I, I see debate over debate over debate about it next season. When you add in VAR for the first time in the Premier League on top of it, it's going to get even worse. Um, I think they're going to have to rewrite this law. Um, and I, I'm just interested to know how long they, they, um, they, they will be able to uh, brazen it out before they do have to make a, a comprehensive uh, change to it back to something closer to uh, the old rule. I suspect, Duncan, that with... with the contentiousness of the wording of the, the law <clears throat> and with VR coming in, we'll end up, all handballs in the box will be a, effectively decision by committee because they will, VR will review it. And unless they think the referee's made entirely the right decision, then we'll get a stop in the game. The referee will either listen to VR or go review the, on the screen at the side of the pitch and then a decision will be made between them about whether or not it was penalty kick or not penalty kick or whatever, <clears throat> which again adds to the confusion for the fans as to what is going on and why is it going on. It delays the game, it'll be controversial, you'll be, you'll be debating over it after every game, you'll debate over the referee's decision, you'll debate over the VAR's decision, we'll get a lot more penalties um, next season as we saw in the World Cup once VAR came in they got a record number of penalties because there are multiple fouls happening uh, in most uh, well in a lot of uh, goal 
scenarios. And if you allow people to go over the video with a fine tooth comb and see if they can find an offence, then you find more penalties and you find more reasons to also to uh, chalk off uh, goals that would be allowed normally because you can find some little thing that happened in the build-up that could be interpreted by one of the, the multiple officials who are now looking at the action and deciding whether there's a foul, as a foul, and, uh, and saying, well, that one doesn't count. So you get, we'll get less goals from open play and we'll get more penalties and we'll get long delays in the game and we will get a lot more um, controversy over refereeing decisions. And look, wasn't this supposed to be introduced to reduce controversy? Um, absolutely, absolutely. <clears throat> we uh, thank you to Junaid for giving Doctor Castles the opportunity to um, exp- explore and explain the handball rules. Um, obviously, it's going to be a very, very contentious subject when we get back into the new season. Uh, this debate that we have on the transfer window, especially on a Wednesday with your questions answered, is designed for us to be able to give you some insight and analysis on stuff like this. But, of course, we want you to listen to it and then give us your feedback as well. Tell us what you think of the new handball rule and ask us any questions that you think are um, pertinent to trying to explain it better or, indeed, what would you do in terms of rewriting the law on handball? We look forward to those answers or questions for next week. For now, something which, you know, we don't know what's going to happen to something that did happen. And of course, Professor Castles was right on top of it. And it was um, uh, Anwar El Ghazi's deal to Aston Villa, the newly promoted Birmingham club, taking an option to make sure they could buy him. And Tom Kerrigan's been in touch, Duncan, to ask you which other clubs are interested in El Ghazi. I think he's trying to gauge um, where Aston Villa are in the transfer kind of hierarchy here. Yeah, it's an interesting deal, this one, in that Villa took the player um, on loan from Lille um, with an option to buy at uh, 8 million euros. Um, They had a very um, specific time frame in which to um, exercise that option, which was just about to expire. I'm told they exercised it on the final day that was available to them. This is a a pretty standard structure when you um, take a player on loan with an option to buy is that you you only have a a limited window in which to, uh, to make that deal happen. Um, could because the, the club that owns them want to know um, what they whether they're, they're having him returned to them for the next season and, and uh, whether they have to sell him elsewhere or loan him elsewhere. Um, I'm told that there were that Leo had two other offers from the Premier League for the player. One was from Everton, um, who he had been linked with in the media, um, and the other one was from uh, Southampton. Uh, a lot of speculation amongst Aston Villa fans that there'd been an offer from Wolves. Um, I'm told that's not the case. It was those two other clubs, and um, Aston Villa eventually taking him, I think, uh, a very fair price, given how he's performed for the club and how important he's been in getting them back into the the Premier League. And uh, it's going to be interesting to see how he performs in the Premier League next season. Um, If he does have a good season, you you can easily see his value increasing well above that um, 8 million figure um, in that first season, which would make it a good, a great economic as well as a sporting deal for Aston Villa. I think it was, a, was there another question about Villa? There was um, from at jacko.com who asks, what, uh, how did the Jota deal come around? Um, and were there any, any other credible rumours indeed, Duncan, rumours about Aston Villa transfers? 
Well, I, our listeners, our regular listeners, will know that we don't do rumours on the uh, on the transfer window podcast. We just do solid information. Um, Jota. Also an interesting deal, also um, one that had a deadline on it, even though it was so, it happened so early uh, in the transfer window. Um, why did it have a deadline? Um, it's because of financial fair play rules. Uh, Aston Villa wanted that deal done uh, before uh, the end of May so they could uh, put, put it on their books for last season instead of putting it onto their books for the coming season. So they offered uh, Birmingham £2 million um, plus Gary Gardner um, in exchange for the player. It was driven by uh, their coach who had uh, had Jota as a player at Brentford and wanted the attacking midfielder in his squad. Um, I'm told it came absolutely down to the wire because Birmingham uh, were required Aston Villa to pay some of the players' wages um, to help facilitate uh, the deal uh, and make sure it went through before that uh, end of May deadline. And that actually both clubs ended up sweating on the deal because they, they um, a bit like has happened in the uh, proper deadline day, um, they had to try and get the documentation into the Football League on time for everything to be accepted. And they had to wait and see whether the Football League were going to um, verify it and take it um, uh, as occurring on uh, the last day of May rather than into June so that uh, Aston Villa and, uh, and Birmingham's books looked the right way after it. So um, that's the first time I've come across that and. Uh, uh, in some time as a football journalist, uh, an early deadline day. Uh, but it's interesting what what these kind of rules around transfers and around spending in football have, uh, have forced clubs to do and, and make them work in different strategic ways than they would have done in the past. Yeah, I think it's, it's very clever. Uh, as long as they're not breaking rules, then <clears throat> they can get the advantage. That's fair enough. Uh, obviously, uh, Villa are doing their business quite early as well, which is, which is impressive. A lot of the uh, promoted clubs either go scattergun, as Fulham did last season, um, or are quite slow off the mark because they were waiting until promotion was secured before having to look at their um, transfer uh possibilities as well as their budget obviously because it's going to vary greatly in the championship from the Premier League so I think some kudos to Villa there getting work, work done early um, which means of course those players will be in pre-season training all managers want that so lots of you have been asking uh, about Jose Mourinho we get lots of questions about the great man every week obviously there's been a lot of speculation about where his next club might be and I think we, you all know We've got the perfect man to answer the question and keep us up to date. So, Duncan, Josie Mourinho, down the big market, Saturday night, packet of fags up his T-shirt, singing Away the Lads. Is that going to happen? Well, I can tell you that um, Josie Mourinho is interested to find out whether there is a possibility of Newcastle United being bought by um, a wealthy owner um, and if it was um, would be interested in finding out whether that was an opportunity for him to manage again um, I think it's a long shot uh, I think for the reasons we explained when we talked about that um, bid that's been presented from a uh, 
sort of a distant, a relatively distant member of the Abu Dhabi royal family, that we had uh, scepticism uh, in the, the city of London as to whether uh, a deal was actually in place. Um, the last I heard, no documentation of, uh, of real significance had gone into the Premier League. Um, people have said that uh, there's a... They don't like when um, people who are claiming they want to buy a club state in public that they intend to buy a club. Gen generally, when these takeovers happen, the first thing you hear from the buyer is after they've completed the deal. So I'm not sure still that that money is really on the table um, and that there are significant resources to be invested in Newcastle uh, from Abu Dhabi were such a deal to go through. Um, if it were, then uh, it seems that Jose Mourinho is open to offers, which would be, as you say, a fascinating prospect. Well, we'll do our best to get Rafa Brites on Friday's podcast to give us an answer as well about how he feels about Jose Mourinho possibly taking his job. <laughs> uh, let's see what we can do on that. So that's the end of the questions for this week but of course keep them coming for, for next week you don't have to just send them in the first couple of days before you can send them at any point because we keep a log of everything and then we choose uh, the ones that we think are interesting and that you guys are going to be interested in hearing answers to but of course it's Wednesday and there's only means only one thing at the end of the show and that is the infamous Donkey Awards and we have to say this week's are more infamous than most. We've decided to take a leaf out of the Conservative Party leadership book, where every candidate seems to be falling over themselves to admit they've taken drugs. So instead, we're going to give the donkey to the player most unfit for office, but who's obviously on drugs, not needing to admit it. Now, I wonder who the candidates are going to be. You just have to open the gold envelope here. Oh, well, well, well. You're going to love the first one. You're going to love it. El Diego Maradona, World Cup 94. Everyone must remember the footage of this wide-eyed demon running to the camera after Argentina scored. <laughs> it was an absolute classic. And who'd have thought that FIFA's drug testers would have actually taken him in for a urine test after the game, having seen that? Well, and Duncan, I think you've got a hard choice there. Next one, Chelsea and Romania uh, player, Adrian Mutu, who, of course, uh, Chelsea pursued for breach of contract when he failed a drugs test uh, while at the Stamford Bridge Club. A player who, let's just say, his judgment may have been skewed when he decided to... He had two cars, but only one parking space in the apartment he lived. And so each week he would park the other Porsche he had uh, on the pavement outside. And, of course, um, that part of Chelsea is very exclusive and you're not allowed to park anywhere. It would be impounded. He was quite happy about that. And he would send a Chelsea Academy player down to the pound in Battersea at the end of the week uh, with 250 quid to release the car and 50 quid for himself for driving it back. And the third one, not quite so high profile, but nonetheless, um, definitely a, a candidate. Gary O'Connor, formerly of Birmingham City and other clubs, done for possession of cocaine in 2014, sentenced to 200 hours community service. Uh, we think he wrote his Mercedes off in a rather strange incident as well. And um, indeed, admitted to having squandered his entire £4 million career earnings. And I don't think he's living in such a kind of footballer's mansion that perhaps he once did. Dunkey, it's over to you for the presentation. Well, I have to say I'm slightly disappointed that, that, uh, that the Manchester City manager, Pep Guardiola, didn't make that list, given, uh, given the, uh, the, the convictions he had for uh, Nangelo and use in, 
in Italy at the end of his career, but I guess uh, he wasn't quite as obvious as our other candidates. Um, Gary O'Connor, uh, yeah, great disappointment for Scottish football that we had a player who, who uh, moved to one of the top clubs in Russia and was uh, shifted to the Premier League and looked like he had the the ability to establish himself as a as a proper international striker and uh, and wasted his his career away instead. Um, Adrian Mutu. Um, and I have an interesting recollection about that in that I had uh, an interview with Adrian Mutu um, not long before um, Chelsea decided to uh, to get him off their books uh, for uh, his drug taking. Um, and uh, one of my colleagues, um, another journalist at another paper, had interviewed him previously and it was probably one of the best interviews I'd seen for a while and I was talking to him and saying oh he's great you just um just sit in the room with him and he talks 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 you can't you know you throw anything at him and you get a great great reply from him and so I was quite busy at the time and I, I usually spend a lot of time preparing interviews um and this one I didn't spend quite as much time preparing it on the basis that he was going to be a really easy guy to interview and um I obviously caught him on the wrong day because he wouldn't have anything beyond the three word answer to anything I asked him um I think, I, think, I think you might have caught him on a day when he hadn't had anything at all never mind a three word answer <laughs> possibly possibly but I think the, the winner the winner here has to be Diego Maradona um, for that uh, incident at the World Cup which anyone who's ever seen it will remember and um, and various uh, incidents uh, subsequently he's uh, he's a man who um, who uh, who doesn't uh, control his passions I think is a is a one way to phrase it and just my own personal recollection, regular listeners to the podcast will know that I once managed Diego Maradona at an All-Star match and I never, never give up the opportunity to mention it. I have to say that when he came on the <laughs> bus, when we met up in Switzerland, uh, he came up to me um, and, and introduced himself as if I didn't know who he was and said, Maradona, Diego, and shook my hand. And I thought to myself, he must think I'm on drugs if he needs to introduce himself. <laughs> So there we have it. This week's Donkey Award winner is El Diego, of course, currently managed in Mexico's second division. So that's going to be a bit of postage. Uh, we'll have to get a few of um, Kaiser Ducks Ducks to fly over to him because I'm not sure we can afford that. Thank you very much for listening this week uh, and giving us your questions. Please continue the debate with us on our Transfer Podcast. That's at Transfer Podcast Twitter handle. Uh, Duncan Castles is at Duncan Castles. I am still at Garbo SJ. Um, as you know, we love to uh, communicate with the, with you guys and we will always uh, give answers and um, try and engage to all you polite people out there um, and even some of the non-polite ones, depending on what you're asking. If you do like the podcast, and we know thousands and thousands of you do, in fact, it's going up week by week, um, please give something back and go on to the uh, iTunes and give us a five-star review. That helps us uh, get more people involved, the community enlarges, and of course, everything becomes more interesting. For now, that's all. We'll be back on Friday to fulfill all your podcasting needs. So it just leaves me to say thank you for listening. Thank you.